Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back to our study of the Abergatinos. And uh, I don't know if everybody here received the email that we sent out today about this group and also the Ladder of Divine Ascent. Um, we wanted to experiment a little bit with the asking of questions or making of comments, uh, just to give the group a little bit more focus and allow to make me be a little bit more fluid, but also to be able to focus more on what the fathers are, are saying so that we're getting to a little bit more of the text. As you, you know, I'm not in any rush to get through any of the works, and I'm fine with making it through a page or so here and there, but uh, I, don't, I don't want us to get too far removed from what is actually being said by the fathers. I want us to ma maintain a kind of continuity in our thought and be able to follow along uh, with her saying in the text. And sometimes, and I'm at fault for this too, I think going on too long. And so maybe just giving ourselves a little bit more of a focus in the group would help. And I'm willing to experiment with this. Nothing is written in stone. Uh, sent out a little email about guidelines that as you know, people formulate their questions, if they can, you know, type them out in the chat first, and then as they're ready to uh, ask their question, you know, to raise their hand as usual, you know, the virtual hand, and then type enter to send a question. And that way, I, you know, I could read it out loud. I don't want to squelch uh, any kind of discussion. And so if people want to elaborate on their question or add to it, uh, you know, I'm not going to certainly prevent that. I don't want to. Uh, it's just I want to see if we can try to make the group flow a little bit more. I've never worked with groups quite so large. This in the latter divine ascent, uh, the numbers have sort of doubled, uh, you know, during the years of COVID. And uh, so sometimes it gets a little hard to facilitate. And uh, so I want to see if I can find a way to do that. And sometimes I can't even see Obviously, everybody on the screen will have three or four screens full of people. And on my computer, I only see, you know, one third of everybody unless I'm constantly scrolling. So uh, maybe if Ren can help me out a little bit with this or anyone, if I'm missing someone or I happen to miss a comment or question, you know, draw my attention to it. And if you have any comments in the weeks moving ahead about how well this is working or not working, don't hesitate to send them to, to me. You know, I'm just sort of experimenting with this myself. Okay, so 
Tonight, we are picking up on page 145, who have just, uh, for those who have just entered, and we're starting with number eight. And if you remember, we've been talking uh, a great deal about obedience. And, uh, you know, I think often this is a, a difficult virtue for us to consider. Uh, and I think what the fathers do a very good job about is helping us view it through the lens of Christ himself and his obedience to the Father. And this unconditional love and desire to do the Father's will. And uh, I think we have, you know, preconceived notions of what obedience might look like. And sometimes those can be uh, positive experiences or negative experiences. And so I think what the Fathers do is help us gradually uh, develop a, a deeper sense of what that might look like, uh, and not only in their lives, but in our own. And so we'll take our time going through this and try to think it through, but uh, there are some parts of it uh, that are certainly challenging. Okay, number eight, Abba Hypercheus said, obedience is the most precious treasure of the monk. The monk who has acquired obedience will be heard by God and will boldly stand next to the crucified one, for the crucified Lord obeyed unto death. And so we here see here already in our first uh, paragraph tonight, the connection with Christ, that uh, our understanding of this virtue is to be seen through the lens of his life, and in particular through the cross, that his one desire, as we hear him say, that his food is to do the will of the Heavenly Father. And so obedience, in some sense, stands above the other virtues, and, and to be prized, because it is the way that the, the love for the Father is shown by Christ and his love for us as well, that he becomes obedient unto death on the cross. And so love is cruciform for us, and it is made manifest in the way that we see it in his life. Now, how that's enacted in our life is something I think that we have to work out for ourselves and, and talk, uh, talk through it. But uh, initially, I think it's important for us to, to have this understanding uh, because it's not a kind of slavishness or being a doormat uh, to, to others or enduring abuse or anything along these lines that uh, what we see is Christ freely embracing his father's will. And this meant subjecting himself uh, to the, the rejection of others and the rejection of his own people, and then ultimately to be crucified as a criminal. Uh, but ultimately what drives it is his love for the Father and for us. And hopefully this will become clear as we make our way, make our way through. Okay, number nine, two brothers in the flesh once went to live in a monastery. Now, one of these was an ascetic, while the other preferred obedience. With such willingness did the latter obey his spiritual father that he performed everything which his spiritual father told him without any hesitation. Many times his spiritual father would tell him in the morning, eat, and he would eat. At other times, on the other hand, he would say, do not eat until morning, and he would not eat. Moreover, in general, whatever his spiritual father ordered, the brother carried out with joy. For this obedience, he was praised by all the monks in the monastery. Seeing this, his brother in the flesh, the ascetic, became jealous 
and said to himself, I will test him to see if he has real obedience. He therefore went to the abbot and said to him, send my brother with me so that he might go to a certain place where we are needed. The abbot allowed his disciple to leave. So, you know, in the first paragraph, you know, certainly we see already what I've emphasized, but uh, again, we see uh, this free subjection of oneself in obedience to another, that uh, they chose to go to the desert uh, to place themselves under the guidance of an elder or an abbot of a monastery. So it was a chosen path that they took for themselves uh, in order to be able to live a kind of life, to conform themselves as much as they could to Christ and to set aside, you know, a kind of uh, self-focus, a willfulness that they knew would often cloud their vision and often clouds ours as well. But it was something that they freely entrusted themselves to. And I think that's important for us to, to see. When the two brothers happened on a river, which was full of crocodiles, the ascetic said to his brother, go into the river and cross it. The obedient monk went in the river, but the crocodile came and licked his body without bothering him at all. When the ascetic saw this, he told his brother, come out of the river. And he came out unharmed. Walking on after this, they found a dead man on the road naked. So the ascetic said, would that he had an old piece of clothing so as to cover him. Then his brother answered, better, let us pray. Perhaps God will hear us and resurrect him. And they began to pray. After the prayer, the dead man rose. The ascetic boasted and said that the dead man arose on account of his asceticism. God revealed all of these occurrences to the abbot of the monastery. Thus, when he had returned to the monastery, the abbot said to the ascetic, why did you seek to test your brother in the river in such a dangerous manner? Take heed. It was through obedience that the dead man was raised. So there's a lot that's sort of disturbing about this story, of course, and uh, uh, not much of a brotherly love there. Uh, but I think a number of things are being emphasized here for us, uh, that asceticism uh, in and of itself can be uh, a willful kind of practice, that one can take up uh, such disciplines and take them up in such a way that it feeds the ego. And he's referred to over and over again here as the ascetic, and it becomes very clear that there's a kind of pridefulness in it that he was uh, able to embrace these very difficult disciplines and uh, so held himself in high regard because of it. Uh, and yet, uh, despite his asceticism, there was a kind of envy, a jealousy of the high regard in which his brother monk was held by the others because of that obedience. And so in accord with his own will and judgment, he seeks to put that to the test and to put it into the test in a very dangerous kind of way. Not only does he place himself above his brother monk, but he, he orders him to do something that jeopardizes his very life, to enter into crocodile infested waters. And, uh, and so there's you know, something very clearly wrong here that his asceticism has distorted his vision 
his prideful asceticism has distorted his vision to such an extent that he he loses sight he loses sight of what is genuine, what is what is loving, and even to the point of imagining that it was by again his ascetic practices that the man that they find on on the road was was raised because of this asceticism, that there is no humility in him very clearly. And so he's rebuked by the abbot for, uh, for both things, you know, for, for in his pride, jeopardizing his, his brother and putting his life in danger, uh, but also, you know, falling into a sick kind of pride, both in doing that, but also then in imagining that he's responsible for raising this other man who's on the road to life. And, you know, what is emphasized for us is that the, the humble obedience here uh, that, that responds without question is, is, is what raises the men, raises the men, because, man, because it, it is, again, in conformity. And this is, again, I think the thing for us to focus on. It's in conformity to the, the obedience of Christ. And it's hard for us with this story, I think, because of the nature of it, that his life was put in danger and he allows it to be put into danger. But I think that's part of the story, that there is this willingness uh, to em embrace obedience, uh, even to the point of the sacrifice of his own life, that this in some way points to uh, Christ's obedience on the cross. And so, you know, certainly in reading this critically, we could stand back and say, you know, okay, maybe wisdom would tell us entering into crocodile infested waters is not the kind of obedience that we are, are called to. But I think if we look at purely at the image itself that's being put forward to us is that obedience is superior uh, to an asceticism that is embraced in accord with one's own will. And so even if we might fault the judgment of the one who entered into the waters, his obedience is still superior to the self-imposed asceticism of the, of the other monk. And uh, this is a curious thing, I think, to see within the ascetical writings, that asceticism isn't something that's an end in and, in and of itself, and that it can fall prey to pride and distortions of all kinds and uh, lacking, you know, the, the, you know, lacking proper judgment, lacking wisdom, and certainly in lacking love, it can be become demonic in its very nature, that here he jeopardizes his own brother. Any comments or questions so far? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay. Nothing so far. You mean you, you all find that pretty comfortable? This story of guy entering into crocodile-infested waters. All right. <laughs> okay. So, number ten. Abba Poyman said, "Do not take account of your accomplishments. Cleave instead to him who lives virtuously and in an exemplary way." So again, you know, not clinging to our accomplishments, and certainly for a monk, 
you know, the accomplishment that they might cling to is the depth of their asceticism. Uh, that, you know, that they have this ability to endure lengthy fasting of, of some sort or other disciplines that they take upon themselves, vigils, very little sleep. And so if there's one temptation for those living in the desert, uh, it would be this, to cling to this kind of accomplishment. And I think the same is true for us today. I think as we enter into the holy season of Lent and as we take up the spiritual life, we can become overly focused upon the ascetical practices and lose sight of the reason why we are embracing them. And we've talked about this before, so I won't belabor it, uh, but we aren't entering into Lent as uh, simply a, a 40 day test of endurance, that all, all of our disciplines are to remove any kind of impediment to our freely loving and giving ourselves in love and to help us overcome you know, the, the, the passions that guide and direct so many of our uh, decisions and behaviors and uh, overcome you know, all the vices insofar as they, they afflict, afflict us and to help us deepen our, our love for God and, and our love for virtue itself. And so like anything else in this world, we, we can make certain aspects of the spiritual life ends rather than having it be relational, having it be directed toward God. Okay, clear so far? So did our new little arrangement scare everybody off from asking any? <laughs> Somebody said it's gonna turn out to be the Father David show. So I hope that isn't true. <laughs> All right, so from Abba Mark. It is not possible for one who lives under the yoke of sin to subdue the desires of the flesh by himself, since he has ceaselessly inside him an inclination towards the passions. Therefore, as long as we are prone to the passions, it is necessary for us to pray and to be obedient. Indeed, only with great difficulty are we able to fight the habits rooted inside us without the help of another. The one who struggles in obedience and prayer against his will is a clever athlete, rendering his spiritual struggle effective by his abstinence from sensual things. I think this is a very important paragraph because uh, our struggle with the this, this passions that are rooted in the senses or rooted in our sensuality are often very difficult to overcome. Uh, because they're part of us and part of our desire is uh, one of our, our desires as human beings. And uh, our sin often will make us gravitate, gravitate towards fulfilling them. And uh, what we quickly realize is that simply by the strength of our own will, we're in, incapable of overcoming them. And that it's only by the grace of God. Philip Neri once said that it's only through the, the Eucharist uh, that chastity comes to an individual, which is a very clear and unambiguous statement that it is only by the grace of God that our very desire as, as human beings can be uh, reshaped and ordered toward God. And 
and so this is true as Abbot Mark is telling us here, that is through prayer and through obedience, through, and as we'll, we'll see this, especially in Hypothesis 20, where they begin to talk about seeking the advice of elders and the revelation of secret thoughts of the heart, that uh, it's only through obedience and, and through this kind of humble acknowledgement of one's thoughts uh, and laying them out before another uh, that one can overcome what uh, often will flood the mind and really overwhelm us as, as human beings, that we will find ourselves overcome by a kind of wave of thoughts and desires. And there always comes a point where we aren't able simply to muscle our way through it, that uh, it's only by humbly and obediently before another acknowledging the thoughts that we are having, that we are ultimately freed from them. And sometimes it's our own pride that then uh, gives rise to a kind of shame about these thoughts that makes us hold back and hide them. Even though we know God sees them, we will seek to hide them from another. And so the, the, the counsel of the fathers is, is always to reveal them openly to, to, to one under whom we uh, live in obedience. And the, the, this is where real freedom comes from, by bringing these things to light and uh, the, they lose control over us. And so all of this is opposed to a kind of individualistic approach to the spiritual life. And essentially obedience is, you know, is, is saying that as well, that nobody walks this, this path alone uh, and is able to avoid the pitfalls that remain before us, that no matter how clearly we think we see something or how strong that we think we are, how much, how long we've avoided certain sins, that eventually uh, pride will creep in or uh, we will be tempted through other, other passions even, other vices in order to draw us to the one that we think that we are uh, that we are impervious to. So, not everybody got the email yet. So I guess we're we're going to break away. Anthony, go ahead with your question. Oh, okay. Oh, you did see it. Good. So this is what fundamentally makes our anthropology different than the Cathars. They make asceticism a mere act of will. We realize we have disjointed psychology that must be put aright. And that is by grace and synergy of the will with grace, we reorganize the soul, mind, and body. And this synergy is individual and communal. Absolutely. Yes, very, very much to the point and uh, right on the money, I would say as well, that there is a kind of disintegration that exists within us because of our sin. And it's, we come to this kind of integration, uh, as Anthony says here, of soul, mind, and body, not simply through the strength of will or through the power of our own intellect, but through thinking it through, in other words, but only by the action of God's grace in our life and the synergy where we take up that grace and act upon it. Uh, so we engage in the life of prayer. We seek to order our, our desires through bodily discipline. You know, we, we pray and pray without ceasing. You know, all these things help to bring a kind of order 
uh, into our interior life. And when we think about this, I think it, it becomes clear again why they saw the active life is not about external acts of charity. That you know they understood that that was part of the Christian life to serve others with love and those in need. But the active life is really the struggle with the interior life, the struggle with the passions, and the struggle to regain this kind of internal uh, integrity, if you will, by the healing of God's grace. And it's also in this way that they saw the church as a kind of hospital. And uh, so through the sacraments and through the guidance of the elders, these kind of divine physicians, those who have this expertise, if you will, in the interior life, that one could slowly begin to overcome the, the things that afflict us, you know, our sins, our passions, and also, uh, you know, give us guidance in terms of how we deal with the temptations of the evil one. Anthony, did you have a follow-up comment or question? Okay. So very good. Rachel. Rachel asks, what does one do if they desire to grow, yet there truly is no one to reveal their thoughts to? Not every single little thought, but the thoughts where one notices a pattern, where one would like help, help discerning their source, how to battle them and to discern God's will. Yeah, we've talked about this a number of times, the, the lack of elders in our generation and those who have the capacity to discern these thoughts and the origin of them and how to overcome them. Uh, you know, I think what we turn to uh, is the reading of the fathers. And I don't know if all of you received the little booklet that we sent out this past month on Cassian's Eight Vices. And uh, I think I mentioned this was one of the first things I read as a young man uh, that began to help me clarify what some of the fathers are saying here uh, about what goes on internally, the, the nature of the passions, how they manifest themselves in, in so many different ways, but then how we begin uh, to remedy them in, in the spiritual struggle. And, uh, and so lacking perhaps those who can guide us, we turn to the fathers uh, every single day, there should be some reading that we are engaged in, uh, even if it's simply a paragraph. And I don't know if you noticed, I, I made a little post from uh, one of the Eastern elders and he was talking about uh, a monk on Athos says that he only reads three books, uh, the Evergatinos, The Ladder of Divine Ascent, what was the third one? Was it Isaac the Syrian? And that, you know, every single day that he doesn't turn a page until he in, like internalizes it and embraces the truth of what is being spoken there until he does what is being said. And so he doesn't allow himself to go further in the text until he uh, incorporates the wisdom that is being taught. And, uh, and of course, I think he's right on that, uh, but it, it certainly slows down one's reading, and, uh, but also helps us to understand that the fathers aren't uh, abstractly present to us. 
uh, but actually in a very concrete way, they are present to us, not only through their writings, but also through their, their intercession. That what we might be lacking in terms of elders in our own day who might be able to articulate uh, aspects of the spiritual life in the way that they do, that uh, they're very much present to, to us, as is our, our guardian angel. Uh, to help guide and, and direct us as well in that spiritual battle, to help us be more attentive. And then certainly we also have the, the sacrament of, of confession, you know, to be able to do exactly what the Father's counsel here, which is the revelation of one's thoughts and what it is that we're struggling with. And I think, you know, this practice could be incorporated into confession in, in, in the sense of saying, these are the dominant thoughts that afflict me on a daily basis. And if we happen to give ourselves over to them as well, to be able to acknowledge that, you know, whether it's anger or lust or whatever it might be, that in the confessional that we would lay these before the the, the the priest and seek whatever, receive whatever counsel and penance he offers. And uh, trust certainly that through the grace of the sacrament that uh, God is giving us what we need to engage in that spiritual battle. But uh, I think one of the things that we really need to embrace is spiritual reading as an ascetical discipline on a daily basis. And we hear this over and over again, it doesn't have to be a lot. In fact, it's better if we don't read in the way that we typically read, which is very quickly and go through one book after another, that we only really need to read a paragraph or so a day to have what is substance, substantive enough to, to nourish us and to guide us in the spiritual life. And most of you here have read through, you know, we've also, Cassian would be a good one to add to that list, but we've read through Isaac the Syrian and all, that you, all of you who've read through it, either in the group or on your own, know that he's the, the best of spiritual teachers. And with Climacus, you're going to find the same thing. And so if we were reading, you know, even a paragraph of one of these writers over the course of 30 years, we are going to come to, to know and understand the nature of the spiritual life, the ascetical life, and how we are often tempted. And so it, it's not, you know, it's not as though we need to be running out to the bookstore or searching Amazon desperately. I think we probably all had that thought, well, if I just have this one book, it's finally going to bring everything together for me, and then I'll get it, I'll understand it. And, you know, oh, that title sounds so, so perfect. You know, it, it's got, it has to have within it what I'm looking for. And uh, there's always a kind of disappointment with that. Uh, sometimes it might be true. And, but I've never, I've never found anything that really is as full and deep as the, the great ascetical writers they usually capture some element of it and they might articulate it very well and maybe for the contemporary mind. But I think if we are, are looking more than to do things in a piecemeal manner, I think we would want to, to read as the fathers and that elder is telling us, you know, a, a paragraph or so a day 
and to read very deeply, but then also to be seeking to apply it. So getting back to Rachel's question, you know, it's that, yes, we are lacking, uh, but we have these other means that God hasn't abandoned us in that regard. We have these other means available to us. Ren. Oh, Mitchell Hunt, I saw that very, okay. Elder Emilianus, all right, sorry. So Ren, did one of the fathers we read even talk about revealing one's thoughts to one's angel? It might've been in the context of the hermits. I think they were able to see their angel, but I think it is still a lovely thought that could apply. I do remember reading that, and but I, like yourself, I can't remember where we came across it. Uh, but yes, you know, it's again, you know, our guardian angels stand with us, not in this abstract way. And I think this is part of the struggle in the spiritual life, that there is sort of like th this notion of a very individualistic uh, experience of the faith, myself and God, and no sense of the communion of saints, that even among Catholics, I think, uh, the, these days, uh, uh, an awareness of the lives of the saints and when they lived and how they lived their life. You know, many, many Catholics aren't immersed in that. And we often don't hear priests preach about particular saints on a given day. And, uh, or certainly something like this, uh, articulate our understanding of angels, their presence among us. And again, not in an abstract way. John Conquist, who we're reading right now, uh, says, you know, if we sin every single day, we, if we fall and we repent every single day, then our angel looks upon us with joy, that, uh, that there's a kind of joyfulness in our turning back to God, that the angel is there to help facilitate, and that what God communicates to us, you know, if these are messengers of God, and this is our particular messenger, our guardian, uh, then one must see them as participating in the most intimate fashion in the God's communication of his will to us in concrete ways. And, uh, and again, you know, this isn't something that we typically think about. You know, if we believe in gar our guardian angel at all, you know, it's something that's just an idea. But the idea of, you know, asking our guardian angel to watch over us, to, you know, to, uh, to bring our needs before the throne of God. And in fact, this is what Christ himself said, you know, about, the, the, you know, those who are innocent, that their angels are constantly before the throne of God, interceding on their behalf. And, uh, and so I think you're right, Re recapturing this for ourselves, not only as an idea, but as an integral part of our day-to-day -day pr prayer life. Uh, you know, in more recent times, uh, there's a call to say the prayer of St. Michael at, at the end of, of Mass. Uh, and uh, you know, which, you know, was a good thing, because I think on some level, it communicates, you know, that these are, are ones that we would turn to, to seek their intercession and protection in the spiritual battle.
And so again, I think that ties nicely into what Rachel was asking. What, what do we do when we feel ourselves somewhat isolated uh, amongst those with whom we live or, or within the church in terms of receiving this kind of spiritual guidance? And so we, we don't want to make that an excuse for, our, for, our, for ourselves, that we do live in an age where we aren't catechized, that we can't count on things being what they once were. You know, Catholic schools aren't the same as they once were. And, you know, catechism classes, you know, there's not this kind of formation or, or within the families often too. And so we're not going to be spoon fed it. And in some ways, we're, you know, we are responsible for seeking out these things and uh, working to the best of our ability to embrace them. And, uh, and so we can't make it an excuse, uh, is the point I'm getting to, um, for our negligence or laziness in the spiritual life and battle. And sometimes we do that. You know, there's nobody to help me or I, you know, I don't know what to read or don't know what to do in terms of the spiritual life. And yet, in every, again, in every other area of our life, we will invest ourselves, you know, in seeking to know how to do certain things or to excel in them will go to great cost to do, do so. And yet with the spiritual life, there, we often lack that zeal and kind of intensity about it. And so the, there's a kind of resistance that we have to overcome in ourselves uh, to helplessness. You know, sometimes in, in psychology in particular, they'll hesitate to give a diagnosis because oftentimes what will arise out of that is not a clarity of understanding for the person suffering with whatever it is that they're suffering from, but it, it can lead them into a kind of learned helplessness that uh, sometimes the diagnosis will say, well, you know, this is what they'll lead them to say, this is what I'm, what I am. And so I'm not capable of handling this or doing this. And so there will be a lack of investment of the self or striving uh, to live their life fully. And that can be true even with some medical diagnosis as well. You know, I think, uh, I've heard doctors in, in particular in uh, diagnosing something like fibromyalgia, which can be very debilitating, but sometimes they can hesitate to give the diagnosis because when they do so, uh, people can feel hobbled by it because they know the pain, they know the affliction of it. Uh, and so often it can lead them to just step back and quit striving to make their way through it or to learn how to live with it, how to manage it. And, uh, and so in the spiritual life, that can be every bit as true. You know, we can feel like, oh, we're, uh, you know, adrift here within the life of the church. There's so, many, so much weird stuff going on or this bishop is saying this, or that bishop is saying this, and, you know, or the pastor said this, and, and then, you know, but what are, what are we doing in the sense of seeking the truth, to know the faith as fully as we can, to articulate it to the best of our ability, as well as then to live the spiritual life. 
Any follow-ups? We're probably gonna have to work in like a, a free conversation kind of thing into this because it does, does sort of feel like the Father David uh, group, but uh, go ahead, Ambrose. Can we talk? Okay, yeah. <laughs> I don't have a question per se. I was just thinking, it seems like, you know, the weird parallel with that is there's like a readiness to critique, you know, but then at the flips, the flip side of it is like this, what you're saying, which is like, I don't have the guidance I need, but I know that's not the right guidance or something like that. I don't know how to say it exactly. That was the thought that came to mind. Yeah, I, I think that's a big part of the reality in our day, too, that when we are faced with these things within the life of the church or even within our own spiritual life, it is easier to project things outward onto others in this critical fashion. You know, the problem being out there and because it does then, again, do this very same thing. It frees us from the charge of simply seeking to live a holy life ourselves. And, uh, and so this hypercriticalism that I think that we see uh, within a lot of dialogue uh, amongst Christians, I think is symptomatic uh, of, of a problem that exists there. You know, when we can't engage each other in a spirit of charity or have a discussion about something uh, without, you know, attacking the other, there's, there's a problem that exists there. And I think... I stopped reading most Catholic, you know, websites or posts long ago, partly because all that I was finding was exactly that, you know, this kind of disputation on various issues, but very little being said about living the gospel. And I found it quite frankly to be disheartening because a lot of that discussion was so filled with anger that it really made Christianity look some, like something that was ugly and not attractive at all. And so it's actually more poisoning to the spirit than anything else to be consuming it. Father Ben. St. Elred of Raveau wrote mm -hmm. a, a treatise on spiritual friendship. Mm -hmm. And I think having someone who you are able to, to, to open your heart to and your mind and your thoughts even though they may not be an elder or a, a priest or a spiritual director, but having a friend like that who you want to grow in holiness together with is so helpful and so important. And in, I mean, in parishes, there are going to be people who are serious about their faith. That's right. Who, who want to grow in holiness and virtue, but the, to find those people and to make those connections is so important. Right. Excellent point. And, uh, we, I'm surprised we haven't talked about that very much, and but it, I think it's important in our own day, especially again in light of Rachel's question, that there is a tendency I think towards a kind of clericalism uh, within the life of the church. You know, to ask, you know, to have to ask the ask Father this, or to seek out guidance there when you know we are all called to this life of sanctity, you know, to this life of holiness. And to have confidants in our life who are making that journey together, fellow strugglers in the spiritual life, which is what was true of most of these monks who went into the desert. They weren't ordained, 
and simply were seeking to live this holy life. And, uh, and so to have someone to reveal one's thoughts to, and we even hear this in scripture, you know, to tell one's sins to one another, you know, they weren't necessarily speaking about sacramental confession there. I think they were seeing the value and the importance of this humble acknowledgement of our struggle with sin. Now, you know, obviously that would be done with a level of discernment where there is a kind of intimacy there and shared desire for holiness. And one has developed this spiritual friendship over the course of years. And uh, in fact, one of the prophets says, you know, have many acquaintances, but one in a thousand as a confidant. And uh, that, so we wouldn't easily uh, do this with another person, but one that we would really trust. But nonetheless, again, that we wouldn't be walking this path alone. And so um, I think sometimes the breakdown of the culture within the life of the church and the development even of those friendships can be hobbled. You know, when I think church becomes a place where we go to mass and then get back in the car and drive, drive home. And so to be able to establish these kind of tight-knit communities where we are, are know there are others who are seeking the same thing. And it, it's not, it's almost as though it can naturally happen. I think when we, where there is like adoration and there are people who go to adoration, you're going to meet others who share that love of the Eucharist or where there are groups like this or scripture studies, you know, the rosary, you know, you are going to encounter and develop friendships with people who share that love of Christ and the love of the church. And, uh, and you know, maybe we focus sometimes a little bit too much on uh, social events, not that they're not a good thing, but I think establishing these kind of spiritual friendships should be the kind of priority. And uh, certainly within families too, I mean, parents in, in many ways should be the most trusted figures and spouses with each other, you know, in terms of supporting each other in this spiritual life. In fact, you're, that's, you're married for that purpose, you know, to be spiritual helpmates and to get, you know, to desire one another's salvation uh, as much as you desire your own. In fact, in a sense, you, uh, the two become one. So the prayer and the spiritual struggles of one, you know, strengthens the other. It's not, it's again, though, that you live the faith life in an abstracted level any longer. I mean, you're, you're one in Christ in this radically profound way that, is, uh, that uh, gives one grace. And, uh, you know, I, I think we've done a better job in recent times, maybe in articulating the theology of marriage, and the spirituality of marriage, but it's still not a, a good enough job in the sense of making that something concrete for individuals that, you know, this, this, is, the, this is your vocation and the heart of your life. And this is what you want your relationship to be based upon and give it shape. So good comment. Anybody else? Okay. All right. St. Diaticus. Obedience is acknowledged as the prime good of the basic virtues which one must acquire 
since it casts out pride and creates in us humility. For this reason, it is also for those who thankfully undertake it, a gateway through which comes love towards God. Adam rejected obedience and fell to the Tartarus of punishment. The Lord loved this obedience and in his incarnation by providence was obedient to his heavenly father unto the cross and death. He obeyed even though he was in nothing inferior to the greatness of the heavenly father so that he might abolish through his obedience the crime of human disobedience and lead once again into the eternal and blessed life all those who shall live in obedience. Whosoever takes on the struggle against the arrogance of the devil must above all then concern himself with this obedience, since it will show to those who take it on all the ways of virtue without any danger of falling to delusion. Wow, what a wonderful and thoughtful paragraph here. And you know, for so many different reasons, uh, I think uh, certainly in terms of it being the prime good of it casting out pride, but certainly it's stress on the, the centrality of love and that it, the incarnation itself is, is rooted in this virtue of obedience. Out of love, uh, Christ takes upon himself our, our humanity. He humbles himself. And beyond that, you know, becomes obedient unto the Father and even un, unto death on the cross. That this is really where we begin to see the, the beauty of obedience, but also the beauty of, of divine love that we are called to and, and the very means of our healing, that it prevents us from falling into the delusion that the, the evil one often fosters within our life that we can live outside of that relationship with God and in a way that is contrary to his will. It's through, like Christ, embracing this self-emptying love and obedience that we come to know the fullness of healing and come even to know more that relationship that Christ shares with the Father, that in and through him, we come to, to share in the life of the most holy trinity. And so th this is one of the most beautiful paragraphs I think I've read on, uh, on obedience. Because again, we, we, we have this the notion, uh, you know, there's a connotation that goes along with the word obedience that I, uh, often is, leaves out the notion of love and the gift of oneself in love. Uh, or, or that it is, you know, somebody you know, trying to keep somebody under their th thumb, that obedience is used in this abusive way. And I think where Chrysostom sort of captures this and when he's talking about marriage and the mutual obedience of husband and wife to each other, you know, this is why marriage is a sacrament, that it reflects so, much, so well and so perfectly that divine love you know, this kind of mutual obedience of gift of the self to the other. Ambrose. Yeah, I think something that stood out to me and that is the, the emphasis that the son, Jesus is in no way less than or lower than God in terms of glory or nature or anything like that. And yet he still subjects himself 
And I think that speaks a lot to our sort of disordered nature where we don't think we should submit ourselves to someone if we don't already think that they are in some way superior to us. You know what I mean? Whereas this is the teaching through example here is that, you know, obedience can be virtuous, even if you're just as good as the (laughs) person you're being obedient to. Yeah, the, the lack of maybe concrete, I think this is why we have to keep our focus on Christ so fu- fully in our spiritual life, because, you know, the lack of perhaps concrete examples of this, you know, it would be a, a magnificent thing if in every, you know, relationship, and in particular in marriage and families, that there would be this, you know, very concrete example of this obedient love, you know, that sacrifices one's will for the other. And uh, that this is the constant example that is given or within religious life as well. You know, when we are reading at night at dinner, we'll read from the life of St. Philip Neri. And you hear these stories about, you know, how freely they responded to him in obedience that rivaled religious members of religious communities uh, because of their love for him. And I think their, their sense of his more of his love for them that it was so freely given outside of a vow, that it was much more like what we see here in the Desert, desert Fathers. And, uh, and so it's, again, it's always going to be this concrete example. And I think religious communities in our day have trouble maybe teaching it uh, you know, with, with this kind of clarity as well, because often I think our experience of it has been of something crushing And in the past, I've mentioned stories to you, like after the council, that there was sort of this, a lot of people fleeing religious life. And part of the reason that I think a lot of them fled the life was that it was experienced as being something that was oppressive, that it wasn't life-giving, that it was infantilizing. And so the obedience under which they often lived was not something that created what we are reading here and their experience of life and of God, but really stripped them of dignity and of personality and really stunted, I think, their experience of their relationship with God, their ability to trust God, and certainly their ability to trust others within the community. And, uh, you know, when the life becomes so oppressive that they would come to resent, even if they're being dutiful and obedient on the surface, inside there can be this passive aggression, you know, a kind of real hatred and resentment toward the other, because if they're being treated like doormats, you know, uh, through all the years of their formation. And again, you know, I I think this is something that the council was calling religious communities to to look at, you know, in the sense of formation. Uh, But I don't think it really, there was really the opportunity for that to take place. I think things happen so quickly within life of the church, and maybe we weren't really prepared to do what the council was putting forward in all these different ways, whether it had to do, to do, has to do with liturgy or the spiritual life or charisms of religious communities. Uh, maybe we just didn't have the ability or the spiritual maturity that there was a kind of woundedness that already existed within the church that made that very difficult. Uh, Because look, for us, you know, 
the spending years of trying to look at this to pull it apart and understand it, this is what religious communities would have to do, but also enact it in this very concrete way in terms of how they are forming young men and women entering into communities. And similarly, if, if I think if you're talking about married life and preparing people for, you know, for their marriage within the church, you know, how do we articulate that? And, you know, I think we see something emerge in the writings of John Paul, but think about how many years after the council that was, you know, in terms of his theology of the body, you know, his views of marriage. And, and still, I, I, I think we've only sort of like scratched the surface in, the, in that regard. Ren. This paragraph, while she's being very obedient here to our new <laughs> structure, this paragraph really serves as the proof of the hypothesis. Obedience is the most valuable because it defeats pride, gives birth to humility and love of God, all without the danger of delusion. Amazing. Also helps to explain why the chapter on obedience is the longest chapter in the latter. Strange that the only time we really talk about obedience in the life of the church is little kids doing what mom and dad say. <laughs> yes, that's true. You know, it's, uh, and it often does. I mean, I think that's the infantilizing kind of thing and, and that sort of forms this vision of obedience in our mind. We never seem to progress beyond that. Don't do this, don't touch that, you know, and, and never allow to develop to such an extent that we see this connection with that it being this great virtue that leads to humility that then leads to love and protects us from delusion. And we ne never progress and mature in the spiritual life and emotional life to be able to embrace it on that level. And, you know, I think getting back to some of the discussions that we we're talking about on the internet, I think they foster this kind of, they foster a kind of disobedient spirit, you know, because there is, there is this lack of docility, teachability within it. Everybody's the expert, you know, about this or that subject, and nobody's willing to listen to the other or to be attentive to the other person. So there's no humility, there's no love, and there's certainly no, no spirit of obedience. I think sometimes even with reading the fathers, it's hard, you know, when we read some of these stories to suspend the judge, judgment, even for a little while to follow along the line of thought, you know, because I think when anything sort of jars our sensibilities or becomes a challenge to us, I, I think there's something within us that balks, especially when, you know, there's part of us that is, you know, wants to cling to our will or finds it frightening the idea of loving and loving the other in such a way or being vulnerable to others in such a way when we look at Christ and the vulnerability of his love, you know, we know that to love also means to suffer. Vulner vulnerable actually carries within it that meaning. And, uh, and th there's part of us that even though we know that in and through this vulnerability, we see the real beauty of love, that it is hard to allow ourselves to go down that path, even often with those that we are the closest with, you know, because we fear rejection, 
or that that love is going to be scorned or that we're going to be wounded in some way. And so even those that we are most close with, we can be very defended, you know, that we'll put up pretty walls that are pretty high and thick. Not that we don't give each other the reason to do that often. <laughs> Teasing is always my bad thing. I grew up being teased. You know, I had all these uncles. And so I learned it. And I, I have it in my mind that it's a sign of affection. You know, like I never tease or bother with anybody. You know, if I, you know, the ones I love, I tease. But then it's not really, you know, it's not really respecting that vulnerability on some level. I must do the thing with my mom all the, you know, a thousand times. You got something on your shirt, you know, you got a little bit of ice cream here on your shirt, you know, to get her to look, look down. So it's, you know, it's not, you know, the respect of the other and the vulnerability of love and trust, the value of trust. We aren't often taught to respect that as, as deeply as we should and see to be able to see it as precious as it is and why it should be protected. In fact, we are often to talk, taught to take advantage of it. You know, we look for to look for chinks in the armor where we can sort of get the emotional upper hand over another person. It's kind of an insidious thing. Anthony. My discipline is political philosophy. Since the Reformation and especially American Revolution, we have a worldview of opposition. And I have the truth. I will separate from you. This is immature and selfish and even Marxist, looking at life through a framework of parties being in perpetual opposition. Yes, but classical political philosophy has the world based on love, friendship, patronage, the ties that bind. That is the classical worldview upon which Catholic ethics are based. Yes, you know, I think, and we, we see the fruit of the opposite of that in our own day, you know, this, you know, political party opposition to each other. And, you know, that the fruit of that is not something that is, I, I can't imagine is pleasing to God because it's all, it's so infected with, you know, plots and I was going to say schemes, but I think they're both the same thing, plots and schemes, <laughs> but, you know, or of people desiring to get what the, the most of what they can out of a relationship rather. So it's, it's calculating. And I often love that little quote from Teresa Lisieux, love does not calculate. And, you know, I think this is what you were talking about at the bottom here, world based on love, friendship, patronage, the ties that bind. The, a true loving relationship isn't going to be looking at the other in such a way as thinking, well, what am I going to get out of this? How's this going to serve me or make me happy? You know, it's not as though our own, own happiness cannot be a part of that. It should be, you know, I think. But I think when we love, it's the other that should be the focus and are seeking their well-being well to lift them up and to strengthen them. You know, this is what, this is the, the Christian ethic that is distinctive, you know, that is not calculating. 
And we see that most perfectly expressed in Christ himself. Okay. Oh my goodness, it's 8.34. So I, I feel pretty comfortable. I think we could play around with this a little bit and get it to work. But again, you know, send me your comments about it or any ideas that you have, because I don't want to lose the, what, what was fluid and joyful. But I did, in some sense, feel that this worked a little better. But I do like hearing other people's voices other than my own. So we got to find out, figure out a way to do this uh, that makes a little fluid. Because I think we got through enough material tonight that allowed us to sort of see the bigger picture of what the fathers are putting before us. And that, that's all I want. I don't, I don't want to squelch the conversation at all. So we'll figure it out. But send me your ideas and thoughts on it, okay? All right. Why don't we close there with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you all.